Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor looking for the smartest home for my cash. Here on the show, I interview money managers who have been in the game a lot longer than I have so that I can add conviction or questions to my thesis about where I'm allocating capital in these wild markets. If you're an investor like me, I think you're going to like what we do here. Now, my guest today is Peter Grandich. He's been on the show a handful of times, long-time, multi-decade investor in the commodity sector, best-selling author, among many other things. I always like catching up with Peter, and I hope you're going to enjoy this. I want to quickly shout out my Substack newsletter. Every Sunday, I publish a letter where I dive deep into the psychology of decision-making, which is the most important tool in every investor's toolkit. Even though I manage money, what I write about is managing my mind. And I get amazing feedback from over 40,000 investors who are trying to understand their own heuristics and biases and blind spots and why they make good or bad decisions in these markets. There's a link right beneath this piece of content where you can subscribe to my free weekly Substack, and I'd love to have you join the tribe. Okay, here's Peter Grandich. Enjoy. Welcome back to The Jay Martin Show. Here I am with Peter Grandich back on the show. Peter, I appreciate you making the time to come back on. Not an issue for you, my friend. Now, look, every time we speak, we end up spending a lot of time talking about two things. Number one being the retirement crisis we're facing in the United States. I want to touch on that today and the debt crisis. I want to touch on that as well. Um, let's start with the retirement crisis. Since the last time we spoke, um, have any headlines increased your concern, Peter, or if someone's unfamiliar with what the retirement crisis in the United States is, you know, how would you explain that to them? Well, first of all, it's very important to people to remember that the retirement is really a man-made myth. It only began in earnest in the 1880s when a German politician thought it would be a quick way to get elected by offering special monies to people if they made a certain age, which most people were not expected to get to. Before that, there was really no retirement system anywhere in the world. In fact, most people worked really till they really couldn't work anymore. However, in the last hundred or so years, a very big cottage industry has been built around the retirement where many of us kill ourselves for the first 75 to 80% of our lives. So the last 20% hopefully won't be in such bad, dire ways, so to speak. And uh, with that, uh, people who wish to do that, we now have an issue because two thirds of Americans are working paycheck to paycheck. And so they don't have the ability to even come close to save the amount of dollars that would need to meet any reasonable comfort someone would think that they would want in those uh, so-called golden years. And by the way, I don't know if your dad would attest to this, but they're not all golden. I'm, I'm 67 now, not quite up there with your great dad, but. I, but I can understand why people can think about retirement because things get a lot tougher to do when you're older. And that's the other big concern and serious concern is that a lot of people are going to have to work well past ages that they thought they could stop working at. And it opens up a whole lot of issues. Uh, first of all, housing, affordable housing. Uh, it's a, an acute problem not only for low to middle class Americans right now, but for seniors. Uh, one business I would definitely get out of 
and, and go into is don't build six, 7,000 square foot homes anymore. The next generation is not even going to be able to afford it, let alone want it. And housing for seniors and where almost can in a sense commingle. One of the growth industries, if you can believe it, is where people who are not related are living together simply because it's the only way they can afford to live at their situation. There's a whole lot of other things, Jay, uh, the cost of living, um, dynamics on how uh, younger people have had to move back in or seek help from parents who then in turn had to forego their own savings and the real big issue the bottom line is when i'm asked well how did we get to this is because for several decades we've been living beyond our means we've been taken away from our future either through retirement savings or spending more money now than necessary and foregoing the opportunity to put something away and because of that we have this retirement crisis Okay, thank you for that. I've got a few threads that I want to pull on uh, based on that answer. So starting with the concept of retirement, I'm glad that you started there. That This was a man-made creation in the 1880s that historically never existed. And, and would I be wrong to say, not just because we would work as long as we can, but there was never as much distance between parents and offspring. And the same as your parents take care of your kids. Eventually your kids grow up and take care of your parents. And this cycle's broken down because of the geography we put between ourselves. Um, and as a consequence, parents are now fending for themselves, which is unnatural, right? And in terms of the retirement crisis, I think the average baby boomer right now has about $404,000 saved for retirement, which doesn't sound that bad until you consider the fact that the average is massively inflated by the ultra rich. The median is actually 134,000. So that means 50% of baby boomers in the US have 134,000 or less saved for retirement. And I think in fact, like 20% have just a, a big zero. Um, two, fit, two fifths have zero. Two fifths. So more than yes. I thought. Yeah. Two fifths. That's an astoundingly large number. And so then you're like, okay, so where do you go next? Right. And, you know, you mentioned seniors group housing. It makes a lot of sense to me because, you know, we've we've fractured the natural community, which would be the, the family. Right. And if that's no longer in place, you still need the support the family historically has provided. Right. And so you, you look towards seniors group housing. That's a really interesting concept. What do you have to say to let's talk? We got to talk about the pension issue then, I think, because. Somebody maybe is watching this and they're like, oh, but that's what pensions are for. And, you know, th these individuals are paid into their pensions and maybe that's enough. Right. So let's talk about the, the, the issue with relying on pensions. Sure. Let me just make one quick point and I'll go right to the pensions. The other important factor is we're living much longer than past generations. So there wasn't th that need for a lot of money, so-called after retirement. Uh, and that also has impacted our health because we're living longer. We're also incurring diseases and, and troubles in medical fields that didn't happen because people didn't get old enough on average to hit that. That's another big point just to close out that point. Now on the pensions, you bring in another issue. Here in the state of New Jersey, states like Illinois and others where there's badly underfunded pensions is a crisis in itself as well because people that are dependent on those pensions 
are not at this point going to get anything close to what they thought they were going to get because the pensions are underfunded. And so uh, between that and also as much as we shifted away from pensions into 401ks and other saving vehicles, which didn't almost in a sense force people, a lot of people elected just, well, I'll let my company kick in, but I could use the money right now to buy something or travel or do something. It left us not in a in, in a good place. And the, this is not just subject to the US. This is throughout the Western world. Perhaps the country with the biggest problems is Japan because of the amount of people who are gonna be retired versus how many people are only gonna be working. How they're gonna be able to fund that is is beyond questionable in my mind. So it's not a it's not an issue just limited to the United States. No, and you're right. Yeah, Japan is on average, I think about 10 years older than the United States. But you're right, point to most any country, including China, Russia, massive populations. Um, the demographic pyramid is inverted in a dangerous way in that there's far more seven-year-olds than 60-year-olds, far more 60-year-olds than 50-year-olds, 50 than 40, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the U.S. isn't as far down that path as Japan, Russia, and China, but it's definitely headed that direction. And as a consequence of that, the last years of your life are the most expensive. You're also producing nothing. So exactly, you're in the years where you're drawing, but not producing. Somebody's getting that bill. Um, okay, uh, Peter, so this is only going to amplify the debt crisis because essentially we're just submitting more expenses, right? Um, what do you see playing out there, therefore, for the balance of this decade, the 2020s? Let's start with that. Your perspective on the debt crisis. Well, it's so out of hand now that after we just went through the umpteenth debt ceiling crisis earlier this year, We've watched them add almost a trillion dollars more onto the national debt in a matter of just six to eight weeks. It's it's absurd. It's beyond unimaginable. It's very tough for me coming in my 40th year. We never imagined anything in the, with the word trillion when you were in the financial markets 40 years ago, Joe. I'm sorry, Joe, calling you Joe. How do you like that? That's a that's an old It's not bad calling you Joe, by the way. You know that. Anyway, uh, I think the big crisis is, is that there's no expectation or reason to have expectation that anything good is going to be done about it. Both parties are guilty for it here in the U.S. This isn't one way of thinking. Uh, all Both parties had chances to take care of this and nip it in the bud, so to speak, and, and they didn't. The big issue that it's going to come down to, it's not only going to just be economical, it's going to be social and political. First of all, about 10%, maybe even 15% of Americans need to be in a wagon and somebody pull it for them. They just had tough breaks, certain things, medical, physical, whatever. The problem is, is that there's a lot more people getting in the wagon that maybe should be bare, or at least that's perceived by the people that are still pulling it. And more and more people looking for a way not to be a puller. And the government is kind of punishing the pullers. They're making it more difficult for us to be a puller. So I, th there, there's political battle, but the social battle is going to be, it's going to be what I call the age battle. Sooner or later, it might not be this decade, might go into the next decade, some young 30, 35-year-old who's going to be taxed at a much higher rate than I was, at, similar to their age, is going to say, wait a minute, we're paying hundreds of thousands for people to get these things done to them medically. They're 85, 90, 95 years old, and I'm basically paying for it. I, I, I can't do it or don't want to do it. 
And then the person on the other end is going to say, well, you, you took out and I'm expected of this and I want to live. And so there's going to, there's going to be a battle of the ages over this. And, and who, somebody will ask me then, well, who do you think is going to win? Who's ever controlling the money? Because whoever's controlling the money is going to control the political power behind it. And right now the boomers still have the largest share. But as we pass now and that money is passed back to younger, the money is going to shift. So in 10 years, younger people could have a more influence on that decision making than they do right now. Yeah, and it's sort of at face value, you could say that paints a sort of dystopian picture where the next generation is being asked that question, do you want to continue to fund um, these amplifying expenses? Look, so you mentioned you know a trillion added to the, the debt in six to eight weeks. And um, I wonder, Peter, you know, given the Fed's activity in order to curb inflation, they're increasing rates, reducing economic activity a little bit, definitely curbing spending as a consequence to more expensive money, but simultaneously raising the debt ceiling and kind of, you know, flooding pockets of the market with cash. And these two activities are, are, are pulling at opposite ends of the same argument. And so it's almost like we're trying to curb inflation. We've overfed the economy, right? We've got two kids, one being the private sector, one being the public sector. So, we're, you know, we're going to starve the private sector, but we're going to keep overfeeding the public sector. Do these two things not cancel each other out? I mean, what's the point of raising rates if you're just going to continue to increase the debt ceiling and and flood money where you need to within the public sector? Does that make sense? Absolutely. And what it comes down to is what we've been witnessing, and that is, a certain segment up at the top near the pyramid, 10 to maybe down to 20% have benefited from all these actions that we've spoken about. And the rest have either gone sideways or down from it. And so as you speak now, for the 40% of the lowest uh, incomes in the US have now have less cash than they did before the pandemic started. So those people, the everyday people, those are the people doing the menial work. Those are the people that going out, don't have the large savings and all, they're more in a precarious financial situation they were than even before the pandemic. And so this has been uh, a two-tier system here in the U.S., not just politically, but also economically. And there gets to a point where the masses get to a point where they just can't take it anymore. And no matter how elite, no matter how wealthy you are, you can't build up enough bridges or enough moats to separate yourself from that. We've seen that now in some Western areas of the world now. Where the, the riots in France were a lot more than just over some poor young man that might have been shot erroneously. It was really the masses of people, in a sense, thinking they were overthrowing the authoritarian government or whatever the case may be. And we see a lot of unrest like that building. Uh, we've seen it recently. Listen, the, the protests in Canada last winter, uh, the protests here that that flare up. So I, I, I don't think that type of system, which you clearly pointed out, is the reality. I don't think it has a long life lifespan. I, I, it'd be very difficult to continue in this manner. So then the question I may run in front of you is, well, what happens? Well, one or two things happen. Either they throw in the towel and we just print money like it's going out of style, reflate. And for a while, it seems things are taken care of or we go into a very harsh period. But I think the big thing that's coming 
And of course, in the last few weeks, many people are talking about it now, but I've been talking about it and I feel it's going to be, Jay, as, as important as the Industrial Revolution was. And that is the BRIC nations forming, or at least many different countries forming separate trading arrangements with themselves, either excluding the U.S. or not giving exclusivity to the U.S. And the U.S. will be a net negative because of what this transpiring how it's actually going to be set up yet i don't think anybody knows but it's coming in in some fashion and that fashion does not bode well for the u.s long term how would you describe the purpose of the BRICS nations peter as you know as it was founded as they've played their roles thus far you know why did the BRICS form and from your perspective what's the purpose been thus far and has it been successful well, I think they feel that the United States has been somewhat of a bully for a lot of years, uh, militarily, economically. Uh, I, I got to believe no matter who you are, and even though you might think that Russia was extremely wrong in how they reacted and what they did in Ukraine, but how we weaponized our dollar and our money and really, in a sense, try to cut Russia off at its knees, they had to ask themselves, could that be us someday? I, I think that's also a factor. Plus, the, we're just we're just not as popular. It's the same thing in mining. I told people 30 years ago, you could have spin a globe, point to a country, land there, and say, yeah, we can go there. Not anymore. Well, that's the same thing as an American. I don't think we're as warmly received in places that just 10 or 20 years ago we were. And that's just the changing of the times. And that's how empires come and go. And that's what I think is happening partly to the United States. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I, I definitely see the fracturing of the uh, geopolitical order, and I don't know, you know, how the chess pieces will fall. But I, I can say my whole life has been the era of increasing globalization, right? A wider variety to cheaper and cheaper goods. That era seems like it's come to a close. Um, what happens next? I'm not. I'm not super sure. You know, and you mentioned the civil unrest. You mentioned the riots in France. You mentioned the freedom convoy that moved across Canada. You know, we see this in the U.S. too, with the the birth of organizations like Antifa and QAnon, and you know, extremist groups right at home. You know, the Dutch farmer protests making international headlines. Um, you know, and and I look at the decade thus far, and that's sort of defined us, right? There, there's been some trigger points. Obviously, you know, the, the pandemic was a big trigger point, but I think that that fire was already burning. It was just a bit of a, in terms of the civil unrest, it was just a match on the gasoline. We for sure haven't addressed the tensions under the surface that are causing these, right? I have no reason to believe we've seen the end of it, right? I, I kind of feel like the decade might, might be defined by further expressions of increasingly dangerous civil unrest. I shouldn't use the word danger because I think, well, there was a lot of very civil, civil unrest, right? That was that was uh, criminalized, very unfortunately. So I don't want to go the wrong direction with that. But, you know, is, is this as monumental as I'm perceiving it to be, Peter? I mean, when you think back to like, you know, the, the 60s, very similar scenario, right? To the extent where we actually had political leaders assassinated, maybe things got far worse and what we're living through now is quite mild. But what do you think about that? I think the big issue is how at least here in the US, how lawlessness is just kind of being accepted. I mean, okay. it, it's still hard for me to comprehend and watch daily. And 
it gets magnified thanks to the internet and Twitter and all, how people are walking into other people's businesses and all and taking something that's not theirs. And in a sense being told, let them do it. Don't even interfere. And uh, people's lawlessness and feeling of safety, I think is what's being impacted. Uh, that I think is, you know, it, it used to be say, well, that's just in the bad core of, of cities. You know, there's, you don't want to go in that section of the town, but basically go 30 miles out to the suburbs and you're okay. Well, all that's come to the suburbs and then some. Lawlessness is not being limited to just one area, one segment of society. And I think that's a big issue and, and the acceptance of it and a fear that you're afraid to do something. Uh, to to protect yourself or, or or that nature. I mean, that's where all this people feeling that they need to be armed and all that nature comes from. And, and you can understand why some people can feel that way when you see so many of these things. These aren't isolated issues. These are basically daily occurrences. That was like, you know, we've accepted like in a town like Chicago where 30 to 40 people were killed over the weekend, many of them not even adults. And it just goes in one ear as we're eating dinner and out the other. And I wonder if 50 or 100 years ago, that same feeling would have been taken by most people. I don't think so. Right. The apathy to the uh, frequency of events like that. Yeah, it's yes. quite terrifying. It's, it's super terrifying. Yes. You know, and, and the way you describe it there, I think what's happening at a local community level, what's happening at a nation level, what's happening in the global level is sort of the same, right? Like a, a lack of order. Um, an increase in distrust and just a massive increase in uncertainty about what might happen next, right? And we're seeing that in all sorts of applications right now. We see it everywhere. We even see it in the markets. I, you know, the markets, uh, I'm not trying to swing your discussion, but the markets are either, can go either way. Uh, there's so many different variables now, no matter what market you look at. And, it, and the input is no longer... Uh, constrained to just a, an area of the world or, or, or a topic. It, it, it blends into everything. And one of my fears is, is that the, from the professional community, forgetting investors for a moment, here in the U.S., their experience, particularly in geopolitical uh, concerns, is not something that they had that be up on for their entire career up until now. And they may be taking some quick courses, but I think these things take a lot of years and a lot of experience to understanding and get through. And I'm afraid people have assumed too much positive to come out of the geopolitical concerns and not enough of the negatives that can come out of it. What are your thoughts on the broad market right now? Because if you look at the S&P sort of year to date, it looks like a pretty bullish chart, right? And you could argue it's being held up by a couple of tech stocks, more or less. The rest of the market's flat, but... For investors who are, and I know many who are looking at this market thinking the game's back on, right? And they start chasing rising share prices and experiencing the FOMO of missing out on the 30% gain thus far this year. You know, what are you seeing, Peter? What would you have to say to somebody who's got questions about that? Well, I haven't, in recent times, I haven't stood in people's way who wanted to play the upside. I don't because I believe it's going to get just back some of the losses that were overdone to the downside, but markets in general for years to come are gonna be underperforming what they performed the last couple of decades. We're not, I don't believe we're gonna average double digit returns. And a lot of people still live a lifestyle 
on the need for that to happen. So for those that were a year ago, oh my God, my world's coming to an end. Look how bad my portfolio is because everything was an equity that was down. Thankfully, the, the market would rally and can, can still rally some to at least address that and maybe get someone into a more comfortable position. Uh, I, I think what you pointed out is very important. Uh, in this generation that, and I'm talking just from professional advising, I'm not even talking about investors. They've been basically weaned on a one way on how to, how to act. It's always been a market that you buy and if there's pullbacks, you buy because it always comes back. And this will just be another serving of that, even though, as you pointed out most correctly, this time it's extremely narrow. It's not that many that are participating in that. And unless it really starts to branch out and expand, that won't last. Uh, I just think some of the things that are out there, as we say, when people really look at their financial situations, it's not as good as it really is. I think hopefully some of them will pull back and try to get a little bit more conservative. To me, if I can get 5% now, 6% for the next year in a, in a, in a, in a, in a note, uh, and maybe the market may get on average 10%, I'd rather give up some of that percentage and, and, and use that income because the next six to 12 months, a lot of critical things are going to happen. Politically here, uh, either this, Either this is the greatest political cover-up scam, whatever you want to call it in modern era, or it's been blown way out of portion and it's somehow going to disappear. But one of those two things is going to happen. It's not going to muddle around anymore. And so politically, it's going to be more charged here, I think, as the months go on. And then the geopolitical. This I can't go back enough, Jay, to whatever's going to come out of this thing in August. You know, this talks now of gold back currency, whenever. I don't know if that's coming this August. But I really think it's critical to see what is going to happen on the world stage. Because remember now, as as the debtor nation that we've become and a, and, a, and a country that realized during the pandemic that much of what we need in daily life isn't produced here. It's somewhere else. And in many areas, not exactly the best friends that we've ever had. I, I think there's a lot of issues that America is going to need to address and so I don't want to get too overly excited that just happy days are here again and markets roam like they did, you know, in, in, in the 90s. And for, you know, up until two years ago, they had, you know, uncaring, full-fledged, put the metal to the metal and go. I don't think that's appropriate at this point in time. Where are you putting cash right now or where, where are you hedged? Talk to me a little bit about your portfolio, Peter. So where have I been badly wrong is what you're asking. Uh, sure, sure. Well, it. that's what it's been. I've been long and wrong on the metals and particularly the mining shares. It, it is, I don't have an answer anymore to explain the discrepancy between the underlying metal prices and what profits can be made from them and what companies that look for them, develop it, and hopefully one day sell them are being valued at at this point. It's even more discrepancy than it was at the new millennium when gold broke under 300. And that was the last time I remember anybody that was involved in juniors thought, well, that's it. This game is over. And pretty much that is the attitude or the feeling about people right now. And it's been accelerated by the stock market coming back some, as you said, narrowly, or even other competitive things like Bitcoin, even though, you know, a trillion dollars was lost in a bunch of other things related to it. Uh, so it's been extremely hard to be long and wrong. But in my mind, 
only one or two things are going to be. Either this is the best buy in the 40 years I've been in, or there was a bell rung. I didn't hear it. And it's, and my bell is going to be rung for not hearing it. Uh, uh, I'm hoping it's not the latter. I don't think it is because I know the things that these companies that I invested in are still going to be needed down the road. And most of them have a good chance of finding it, developing it and, and, and mining it. So within the mining companies, maybe within the metals specifically, um, where are you exposed right now? Gold, silver, copper, talk to me about where you, yeah. where you like your exposure right now. Well, I'll tell you this, from the only thing that matters is going forward. People spend too much time in the past. Yeah. You can talk about the past all day, but the only thing that matters is what's going to happen in the future. The least one that I worry about, the one that I don't think there'll be a problem making money on, but there's so few ways to make money on it, and that's uranium. Every week goes by now where the alternatives that we were told just years ago with this, the surefire ways of energy needs are blowing up, wind, uh, solar, uh, and meanwhile, nuclear is went from not in my backyard to please put one in my backyard. Yeah. So on the uranium market, but there, unfortunately, there's only a handful of producers. All others are gambles because you're all hoping they find something, develop it in time, take advantage of a higher price and move forward. Yeah. But uranium, I think if you just bought the underlying price through something like spot, I, I don't see how there could be a large loss. I think the market that's been overdone to the downside is the copper market. Doesn't mean it still can't go lower for a few more months, but the dynamics of supply and demand are screamingly bullish if one still invests for multiple years out. And therefore, that is a market now that uh, you know has a 10 or 15% downside risk and has triple digit more upside in my view. And gold and silver are always the investments that you wanna own and hope you don't make money. And I always get the same answer responses. Why would I want to buy something that doesn't make money? And I say, because if your goal makes a lot of money, chances are what you own mostly of didn't make any money. And right now, both of those metals are reasonably priced, not only as insurance, but as capital appreciation opportunities, both equally, by the way. And people that know me, I always favored gold over silver. But right now, silver, because of how much more industrial demand there is and the shrinkage of supply, warrants that to have equal stance in my view along with gold interesting okay yeah you know i i um i like your statements on uranium i completely agree it's it's hard to find high quality exposure outside of the biggest producers in the world like sure you know look to cameco there's a couple companies otherwise it's a very speculative sector isn't it it's quite tough to know and you could say oh well you know rising tide lifts all ships we just got to wait till the market catches and then yeah, it's not not the worst strategy. It is a it is a tricky one though. It's it's very tricky one. I completely agree. Can um, I just say one thing about the rising tide of all strategies? Please. If if I had a wall of the certificates that I thought that would have worked under that uh, that scenario over the years, yeah, that, that's a poor choice that gets made in the juniors. And one other thing, if I can say about the junior resource market, yeah, the, it has changed dramatically, Jay. It is so much more difficult for a junior company to expose its wares and get recognition than it did 20 or 30 years ago. It's much more challenging. They are fighting for perhaps even a smaller pie than it existed 10 or 15 years ago. 
And that is one of the issues that we face. There's a lot of competition. A lot of people went elsewhere and there's things that seem competitive. And then overregulation has killed that market as well. So I'm not trying to give an excuse for a junior resource that's down 70, 80 percent because I have enough of them. But the bottom line is it's more challenging now than ever before to run, develop and try to be successful running a junior resource company. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And and in terms of like more options for investors to play, look for speculation, because you're right, because if I think about, um, you know, some of the some of the people that I learned from in this industry, like, you know, Doug Casey, Rick Rule, kind of the, you know, legends from the last couple of decades, whenever I asked them, what attracted you to the junior mining business? Their answer was always the same. It was there's no other industry in the world where I have the potential to consistently uncover 10x, 20x, you know, returns on my investment. That's no longer the case. I mean, if you love junior mining for the volatility, like if that's your reason, as as they stated, you can find that in spades, right, through the crypto market today. So if the attraction was the volatility, which for a lot of those titans, it, it was, right? It's treacherous, very dangerous market, and you can go broke waiting on a bear market as we all know but you know if the attraction was that volatility there are more options to seek out that volatility especially you know if you're well the, the crypto market's a 24 7 market right so it's it's uh it's more like a gambling operation um in terms of the slot machine that never closes uh i'm not saying it's a healthy option I'm not saying that at all but i i get i i, I get it you know i i get why there's so here's the thing then so therefore you know, what's the attraction? Well, at the end of the day, supply and demand is supply and demand, right? And the commodity sector is a supply and demand driven industry and, you know, speculative attraction or not, at the end of the day, we need certain things, you know, they only come from one place. That's the earth. There's no other option there. Right. And so, you know, as we run short on silver, copper, nickel, and I watch the gold sector, I'm probably most bullish on gold right now in the commodity sector. And strictly because I, I look at the, the massive accumulation of central banks, the repatriation of that metal of those central banks they're taking possession right taking physical off the market there's a lot of physical gold being sucked off the market right now and um far faster we can produce it institutions are slowly following suit they're increasing their allocation the miners aren't getting any love yet but the streamers are right wheat and precious metals franco nevada um a cisco gold royalties all-time highs right and if barrick and newmont aren't there yet they're sitting 30 percent below all-time highs that's maybe my opportunity. And I'm right now scaling into the mid-tier producers, walking in with no competition. And frankly, I love it because, you know, I'm buying companies that are producing between 150,000 to 300,000 ounces with a plan to half a million and a vision for a million ounces per year. And nobody cares, right? It's like, no one cares right now. So if I'm clear on my time horizon, I feel like the, <laughs> I feel like the macro is playing in my favor. And, you know, if I can be patient, then... I like the positions I'm building right now quite a lot. Well, it's the absolute contrarian's delight ever in the 40 years that I've been around them. I would like to make mention of something that's probably going to be talked about more by you and others. And this repatriation happened because the central banks realized where the world was going, where the changes were happening with brick and that nature. And one of the ways that crypto indirectly is going to play a role in that in my view through blockchain technology is digitalized gold 
the way I think they have to go if they're going to do this. Remember the old, the simplest way to explain to everybody what the gold standard was, two countries would trade. If one bought more than the other, they transferred a certain amount of gold to them to make up for the deficit. And that was what kept things right. And that was how gold backed supposed to be our money. Well, be able to digitize now gold through blockchain technology is a way that I think is viable on how they may set up their trading. And that's one of the reasons they wanted to have gold back and have as much as they could possibly have and why I think China has been, you know, floored, you know, pedal to the metal on accumulating gold and all. So I think gold will return back into favor. It may not be in the exact way that we did, but it is. And like I said here, there's only one or two things. Either we miss somehow the bell being rung and this industry blew up and we didn't know it and no one's ever going to need it again. Or like you said, common sense says, yes, we need these metals. So if nobody wants to own them right now, well, I'm going to be one that's going to own them because it's going to turn around and that's where the big returns come from. And, and, and I concur with you on that. Okay. Well, I like that. I like that. Look, Peter, I want to thank you for chatting with me today, coming back on the show and getting in front of my audience. I appreciate it. Well, I still hope my invite, I haven't spoken in 10 years, but if the invite's still good to come up in January, I hope to see you then. Yeah, 100%. I can't wait to do this live on stage. It's going to be fun. That would be great, Jake. Really appreciate it. Give my regards to your father as always. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in. 